0: Welcome to Global Brains, the podcast, where we interview AI experts, thought leaders, business executives, as well as young talent all over the world to demystify AI and discuss the latest trends in business and beyond. Our goal is to make AI understandable and accessible to everyone. So let's get started with your host, Michael Burkhardt. Welcome to episode 6. Today we talk to Joanna Bryson, who is a leading AI specialist and an associate professor in the Department of Computing at the University of Bath. And she is an affiliate at Princeton. According to her blog, Joanna is interested in everything, which is represented by her work on AI, human intelligence, ethics, culture, and collaborative cognition. She first got into contact with AI in the mid 80s. And Joanna earned a doctorate for her thesis on modularity principles for engineering complex adaptive agents. Currently, one of her focus areas is on standardizing ethical design for AI and autonomous systems. And today we talked about her background, her PhD, how it relates to designing safe intelligent systems. And we ended the episode with touching on consciousness, her opinion on Bitcoin and inequality in today's world. And yes, today's episode is a little bit longer, but it would be truly a pity to not share all the wisdom and extensive experience that Joanna brings in. So enjoy. I would say then let us start with an introduction. So um, could you tell us a little bit more about your background?
1: Uh, Well, um, my first degree is actually uh, behavioral science, which is a kind of... uh, non-clinical psychology. It was really uh, at the University of Chicago, so it was a liberal arts degree that was joint between uh, all the different faculties of social sciences. So that's why I really cared about it. I I wanted to understand actually animal intelligence, but humans are pretty interesting animals too, and uh, (laughs) I was looking at all those things. But I was a really good programmer, so I think it was actually a conservative uh, uh, decision on my point to do what I knew I was really extraordinarily good at um, and combine it with what I was really interested in. Um, the, and, and that's worked out pretty well for me, although who knows if I'd gone straight into, uh, you know, neuroscience or something, but I, you know, maybe it would have been even better. Who knows? But anyway, I'm pretty happy with where I am. And I have to admit probably the fact that I was a bit of a sci-fi geek didn't hurt with that, but I do really enjoy programming. I like the fact that you can sort of build worlds and, and the creative aspects of
0: it. So it's nice to have both parts of my job. All right, so it means you are touching on so many different fields, from human intelligence to natural intelligence to artificial intelligence. Were there any mind-blowing insights along your research?
1: You know, I, I don't know to what extent you can really say that uh, that science isn't necessarily all about mind-blowing stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so so um, you know, you you keep pushing the border f- the the the. Um, well, yeah, you have to think of it like a, like an amoeba, like humanity is like an amoeba, and we know more and less, and we kind of send out like those protoplasm things, and then sometimes we retract them again because it turns out that wasn't quite right. you know. And so you're, you're there at the front lines, but it's interesting because the front lines isn't like just one person. It's not like you just put a flag there. It's about people getting a better understanding. So um, you both become a part of a scientific community, which is determining what the actual border is right now, and so a lot of your early uh, work is about um, about becoming that part of that border, being a good reviewer, understanding better what other people sort of already know, and tying the pieces together. So I wouldn't say that there were things that were enormous breakthroughs that I knew were breakthroughs at the time. The funny thing is that um, the stuff I did, I thought it was really, I thought it was amazing. I thought I've solved the problem of how to make it easier to build human-like intelligence for like games and robots. And I you know, I put the source on the web, everybody said, Oh, open source and I expected the whole world to be better at making humanoid robots and and stuff. And uh, it just sort of like dropped. It dropped like a rock, you know, and and I didn't get um, and so I thought, well, okay, whatever. I'm I'm still working on my cognition stuff. So I Mm -hmm. went on and I and for me I was very happy because I came to better understand the, the initial questions I had about why there's different regions of the brain that um, have different kinds of representations, why there's not one single best representation for the brain. Um, And understanding that was a process of understanding things that um, people had been figuring out in AI uh, and computer science for a while, and then bringing that over to neuroscience. So I still understand some things that like really smart people in neuroscience sometimes seem to be missing. But that I wouldn't say was extraordinarily just me, it's, just, it's more like that I'm rallying my party forward because I've seen what answers what questions, and that's part of what I'm doing. Meanwhile, back to that thing that I did about the humanoid stuff, we've only just realized in the last few years that, that the stuff that I did as a PhD revolutionized game AI. <laughs> so, so it was actually a breakthrough, and, and, and um, in game AI it's mostly called behavior trees, but it came, like, from a direct path out of my PhD. And, you know, I'd sort of seen in the early days of search engines that some game companies had uh, copied and pasted my the text from the abstracts that MIT made us put online into their, uh, into their advertising.
0: And I was like, oh, whatever, you know. Can you, uh, can you elaborate on this a little bit? What was your P- PhD about? So that somebody well, who well, does not have a background in this understands what your PhD was about and how does it relate to the breakthroughs then? To the gaming. To oh well, the the, the
1: basically, in uh, before. So one of the things, even when I was an undergraduate, that people were talking about was modularity. About um, maybe you're even sort of a different person when you're driving than when you're a pedestrian because you have such different attitudes. So it seems like you have these discrete sections of your mind. You're not all just one big thing. So even philosophers were talking about that. And then in, when I was programming professionally between my undergraduate, and my PhD people were starting to realize that maybe you didn't need one big mainframe. Maybe you could have a bunch of different computers and create like a network. I mean, now it's obvious. We call it the cloud. But at the time, it was this big thing that people were saying, oh, yeah, client server architectures. Maybe we can get some computing doing specialized in different tasks based on the hardware that was there. So then when I got to do my master's degree and I saw what Rod Brooks was doing and, and, and a bunch of other people, and I was at Edinburgh and they were all very excited about this. It was called behavior-oriented design. And the idea was that you built the modules, uh, instead of trying to build something as complicated as a person, you built modules that were relatively simple, which um, they, each module perceived what it needed to perceive in order to do what it needed to do. Now, one of the things that was being done at the time was they were saying, oh, and you shouldn't have any, you shouldn't have a representation, you shouldn't have any model of the world, you should just respond to the world. But that actually really restricts what you're able to do. Memory turns out to be super useful. In fact, it's very, very different. To, di- sorry, it's very, very difficult to, to sense. You know, to get intelligence from just sensing, you have to bring some information, um, and that's what perception is. Perception is you have uh, an organism that that has a set of goals and a set of experiences, and then it takes these tiny bits of information from the environment and it produces something, right? And so to some extent, module, you know, behavior-based AI was always that, because you already had these actions that were looking for the opportunity to be expressed, and the memory was kind of being constructed. The, the agent was the memory that was being constructed out of the, the knowledge of the programmer. So, there was our, so there's a problem, which is when you're trying to engineer a system, which is a big thing. People think that, oh, there's nobody working on safe AI. No, systems engineering is a really big deal in computer science. And so there was a debate about how do you best decompose uh, a program into objects. Um, Because again, this was early in object-oriented design. This was the late 90s. And uh, one of the theories was you should do it around uh, state. And I realized that that was what we needed to be doing also in, um, in, in AI, in new AI, as it was called at the time, in modular AI.
0: 1991 so, you started, right? 1992 in Edinburgh. Started in
1: 91.
0: And actually, I
1: uh, first was working in AI nominally with uh, a guy named, uh, what was his name? Chris with a K. Hanson? Ha- Hammond. Chris Hammond came to University of Chicago in about 1986. And so I was his tutor, even though I had just graduated. So I, that was my first uh, contact to real AI. <laughs> but anyway, so, so with auditorium design, you are able to um, you compose around the memory. And I realized, yeah, not only do you need memory in order to uh, have intelligence, but also it makes sense that that is the core of the module. So one of the things that determines when you need a module is what kind of information you need to do the perception and action. So that was one component. The other component, though, which is the one that went into the games industry, was how do you arbitrate between these modules? So once you've taken something apart into pieces, one of the problems is how do you assemble it back up again, right? You need coherent behavior. Now, um, yeah, as there was another guy at the time, Bruce Bloomberg, uh, who pointed out, well, basically it's only a problem when you need the same resource. But there's, you know, and yes, there's certain kinds of things you can do just autonomously, like, uh, you know, reflexes to, to avoid fire or something like that. But actually quite a lot of what any a- organism has to do, there are certain kinds of ref- uh, uh, resources, like just your physical location, that are completely determined um, by, uh, you know, like all the modules care. <laughs> so so that was when I created, like, what's now called behavior trees. We called it um, Pasha... Posh, uh, it was um, let's see if I can remember prioritized ordered uh, slip stack hierarchical action selection right so it was past okay. action selection okay. but the basic idea was that the one thing you really need to do that's different from a standard object oriented program is you need to say what are the priorities of the system because an AI system is proactive it's something that that actually has to recognize the context in which it's gonna it's gonna act and indeed. It, it has to act for homeostatic reasons it has to act because it knows it needs to do something it has a purpose right so um i basically was worrying about making it easier for real actual programmers to uh, put those priorities into the system and really i actually had papers in the um in the early knots at the, at the right at the end of my uh, uh phd saying about how this is really important for safe ai too That that If you have the learning happening only in the modules, then there's a limit to how evil or whatever the AI system could become. I mean, I wasn't really worried about evil AI, Hmm. but I was worried about not being able to guarantee that, for example, it would know to run out of a fire or whatever. So you had to have certain high priorities about um, guaranteeing the system that are relatively uh, deterministic. And then if you, even if you use machine learning, that can also be used in a deterministic way because you can have uh, boundaries around which you don't allow the system to update its learning. So if it looks like it, if it's not going to meet pro- pro- performance uh, guidelines, you can basically build deterministic sort of fences around the system that's trying to improve one aspect of what the system does. But the mistakes that people like, um, uh, you know, Bostrom make when they say, well, it's not really, B- I have, I've never heard Bostrom say, I've I heard Future of Humanity uh, Institute people say, um, what if you have, oh, well, yeah, Bostrom says about the paperclips. That's right. Let's, let's pick on Bostrom again. <laughs> okay.
0: So, so I, the, the mistakes that people like Bostrom make about. Um, so by the way, Nick Bostrom is a researcher at the University of Oxford who is um, focusing his research right now on AI safety. And he also wrote he, a very popular book, Artificial Like Superintelligence. Um, right. And and he's not really a
1: researcher; he's a philosopher. But okay. but he uh, but but he is studying. You know, I I guess it depends what you mean by research. Of course, there, humanities also do research. Mm. But um, but he's just thinking about it, and and you know, he's exploring and talking to people and things. But the point is, if you actually build a system, there's zero chance that you would build a system that would turn the world into paperclips because the, and he's worried about the alignment between, um, you know, you, you have the high-level priorities and then what happens at the lower levels. But you don't give full autonomy to the lower levels. If the system's autonomous at all, it's autonomous at the level of the priorities that you have that are that are guaranteed to be in it. And then the there subparts that are going off and, you know, learning the best way to do something, if the rest of the system, which includes normally for any AI humans, um, is uh, notices that there's an overconsumption of metal or something, then then it would shut that part of the system down. Okay. So there's no, you would have such a system.
0: Okay. Can you give one example? So far, what I understand is you have different components that consist the system basically. So instead of having like one system that can work autonomously, you have different components that work as um, like a modular system that makes. An entire system and you can control those modules so you are saying you have higher uh, level priorities but you also have the lower level priorities and you can somehow integrate a mechanism a safety mechanism to um, control these components
1: yeah well let, let's take a limit case one of the you you're you basically got it right um let's take a limit case example of this that some people have said and i think for good reason that uh that corporations are a kind of ai okay because, you know, it's not like uh, they're, they're, they're an artifact, they're something we've constructed, and um, it's not like one person has any idea what the entire uh, organization is doing ever. Even if you only have three people, you're never quite sure what your administrator is doing really with their time, right? <laughs> so so the, uh, the, um, the point is that we can already see that there, you know, you'll have something like, for example, right now Bitcoin, Nobody had originally expected Bitcoin was going to consume as much power as it has, but now everyone's trying to figure out how to regulate that, okay? So that, and that's a problem that, to some extent, is self-regulating because uh, people can't afford that power, right? So, that, so that there's a cost to the power. So as long as uh, there's not an infinite value that, you, that will arbitrarily uh, assign to the Ponzi scheme that is Bitcoin, <laughs> then, then there'll be a constraint about how much power uh, uh, they'll be able to buy, but it seems that there's other for- regulatory forces that may come in anyway and say you guys aren't paying your fair share for the environmental de- environmental damage you're doing, and so then they may be forced to actually, um, and maybe not just them, all environment, uh, all uh, power consumers may f- suddenly start find themselves as a consequence of the the conversations we're having about Bitcoin actually paying a more appropriate uh, amount of money for the for the, for the infrastructure they're destroying the, the, the global infrastructure so so the point is that um, you may say oh but that's because people are involved but the point is that uh, to some extent that we're, we are able to do similar kinds of processes so Iran got called this uh, cognizant error detection. It's the awareness that things aren't always going to go right. And so one of the basic things you should do when you structure a system is make sure that you build components that check, that look for, in fact, this is the easier way to build a, a powerful system, is to have simple components that are detecting when uh, other components are going off the rails. So. I'm not saying that it's necessarily true that everything works. As we all know, there's been very good examples of corporations and various other uh, entities that have done enormous damage to the world, right? So it's not that the world is perfectly safe and nothing bad can happen, but it is that there are processes that we can follow that make it much more likely that we'll catch uh, catch those processes early and keep them from doing much damage. And so that's one of the things I'm working on a lot right now is um, just trying to communicate to legislatures that you can hold um, people who use artificial intelligence uh, accountable. And I'm also talking to companies. I was literally just talking to uh, Microsoft and Google like two weeks ago about this, that this is uh, what I expect to be coming down the pipes is that you are no longer going to just be linking to any arbitrary software library that you downloaded from the internet and you don't know its provenance and you don't know who's hacked into it or whatever. Rather, you're going to have to um, be able to show what version of what software system you've used and what version of what data library you used to train your machine learning and what your procedures were. And if you don't have those kinds of records... Then you're not going to be able to prove due diligence, and so then you're going to be held um, responsible, you know, liable for any damage that you do or that people other people do with your software. So that's the way it already is if you look at things like medicine or the automotive industry, where there already is good practice um, with, with doc, fully documenting the way they develop their AI, and they have loads of AI. You know Everyone talks about driverless. But there's loads of AI, and every car manufacturer now is using it to try to improve the driving experience um, and make cars safer. But they already have all this stuff documented. It's not impossible. It's not even that hard. And and, and when you are careful with your, soft, your software engineering, it does take you a little longer to go to market, but you also, it's much easier to maintain and extend your code. So um, I think we need to grow up. I mean, I think that, you know, for example, architecture, it used to be you could just build a building anywhere you wanted to, and, and, you know, that would create various kinds of mayhem for traffic in cities, and sometimes buildings would just collapse on people and kill them, right? What you have now is that undergraduates gain architecture degrees learn how to talk to, um, to people that are, that, you know, the city planners, uh, and, and they learn how to, they are going to get licensed, they learn how to become licensed. Um, and buildings get inspected. I think it, we could very well wind up in that kind of place. And it doesn't mean the end of IP. Medicine is, is heavily regulated, heavily inspected, but it has 10 times as much IP as, as uh, the, the software, the technology industry. So I think we're just going to find the processes by which we develop things um, are changing, and that, that's good for our society. We all want to live in a society that's that's at least stable enough that we can know that we can plan a company or a family or something like that.
0: You, you just mentioned that there is an intelligence. So for example, a culture, a country, it could be a collective intelligence, or let's even talk about the world. But the problem is that there's no like, really a global consciousness. And that is the reason <laughs> why a lot of things are going wrong, because there's no party. There's no um, overlying um, consciousness that is putting all the bits and pieces together in a way that is positive for all of us, which is related to the problem of AI. And you are approaching this by this modular um, this concept of yeah. breaking it down into components that are controlling other components. And um, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because that is in- it's an interesting uh, viewpoint. And it's a an connection that not a lot of people are making.
1: That's really interesting. Um, you've obviously done a lot of reading, and I would agree with the first half of your characterization. I don't think I ever said that um, the problem is that we lack a glo- global consciousness, although I do say that as we increase our global capacity to perceive, that we're more likely to, to handle global problems, like, for example, climate change, which we weren't able, we literally couldn't detect before. And now we can, anybody can go and see those maps that show how much warmer the world is and things like that, right? So, um, but I wouldn't say that a single global consciousness is necessarily the right kind of metaphor. And even within uh, people, we know that, you know, you can have strokes in quite a lot of the brain and you, you can have a, um, a compromised consciousness, but not, you don't entirely lose all awareness or all capacity to communicate, hopefully, depending on what kind of stroke you have. So I've been working actually a lot right now on economic inequality. And so this is really speculation. It's not published yet. Um, in fact, it's not even written up yet. We do have a, uh, a, a paper that's written up and it's in archive and that we're trying to get published, um, about how inequality, uh, correlates with political polarization. But anyway, just, uh, that, and so this is what I'm about to say is not even in that, <laughs> but, um, I used to try to understand uh, World War I when I was a kid. I mean, all the other wars, we you know, we have to write our history lessons. And you can say, you know, exactly what happened with the American Civil War or the Second World War or something like this, the American Revolutionary War. Um, you know, I was in America. We didn't get taught a lot of wars. <laughs> but anyway, so for these sets of wars, the small set of wars, the one outlier was, was World War One? it made no sense and everything you know and the books even said it, nobody knows it seemed like there was a maybe it was something about a big chain of, of uh, agreement but now I think that you know I'm understudying inequality I'm understanding better because um, that was also a period of immense inequality like we have now and what we're seeing is that individuals are able to make too much difference like one funder um, that has a set of interests can has so much money that they can fund uh, um, a politician, and uh, or even if it's not one funder, it could be a very small number of funders that are able to get together in coalition. And one of the things they do when they go, when you have a very small number of people giving a huge amount of money to a politician is that they force them to have extremist positions, um, I think, in order to make sure that that politician isn't taking money from other people. So they they make them say things that are you know probably false, of course, but also um, you know, uh, but also in the direction of them, so everyone can see. Okay, who's who's this person taking money from? So I think actually having um, a small number of actors endangers you. When when there's some individuals that are able to to go so far out, they could just make you know random arbitrary decisions that turn out to be a bad idea. I can't imagine. Now I'm now I'm suddenly going back into the car industry here. I can I can't imagine who in the current headlines is making me think about this who wasn't maybe getting enough sleep or something and, and did uh and did some erratic things, right? But one person shouldn't have that much power. And that is it's almost a definition of government is redistribution. And so you don't want it to be totally equal. So communism, socialism, that wasn't actually the best thing. It turns out that there's something called the Gini coefficient, which is between zero and one. And it turns out just empirically, we don't have a good theory for this, that the best level seems to be 0.27. So you want enough money going to the people who are making innovations or who are working harder or who are just happy to be lucky to be in the right place at the right time to have, you know, things that they could do that benefit people. You want them to be able to get more money. But not too much more money, mm. right? And that's the getting that balance right is sort of the the history of politics and governance, and we didn't totally understand it before. Mm. So coming back to that, it's not clear to me that having one consciousness at the top of the whole planet, um, you might, if you actually architect that, to have a whole lot of uh, well uh, networked you know, heterogeneity. Um, uh, you know, oligarchy, whatever—some other way of 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 um, maintaining the planet. Then someone from outside the planet might describe that as a single consciousness. Mm-hmm. But from the inside, from our perspective, just like from the inside of the brain, it's not going to look like one thing. <laughs> it's going to. So I I don't think that we need one you know super intelligent machine or something. It, it, why would that be any different from one you know powerful individual? I I think it's more important to have an architecture. Yeah. Which is um well, and we can come back to this but 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 I think it 's actually really important that there 's core humans that are accountable, but the humans are enhanced with the AI that we 're able to use um so that their decision making is improved mm-hmm. um, and i 'm not saying they have to be you know like like Borg or something, <laughs> we are enhanced by Google Maps or whatever, and we don 't we don 't implant it it 's just there <laughs> yeah.
0: when when you talk about ai in in general um a lot of people are going the direction of humanizing artificial intelligence which opposes your point of view as you say that artificial intelligence is something completely different to human intelligence how we perceive the world how we make experiences and you're even saying that ai will never be human it will be always something different Okay.
1: okay so so there's two fundamental differences uh one is that Uh, artificial intelligence, by definition, is an artifact. It's something that we've deliberately designed. And even if we choose to design it by throwing some dice once in a while, that doesn't make it any less our responsibility. The other fundamental difference is that we don't, uh, so far, build it by cloning. So all the stuff I say doesn't apply to cloning and biological engineering and things like that. I'm just talking about when you build a system out of uh wires and silicon and those kinds of components then phenomenon sorry then phenomenologically you are never going to get the same kind of thing are you still there i'm still there yeah okay great okay that's really (laughs) weird okay so phenomenologically you will never get something as close to us as a cow or a rat or probably even a fruit fly is close to us because those share much more similarity in, the, in terms of architecture and in terms of information processing um, of, and, you know, of how they deal with the world we're in than anything that we build, uh, as I said, out of wires and silicon ever can. So if what you're worried about is phenomenological consciousness and things like pain and stuff like that, it's never going to be this, as similar as an animal. And we eat animals, we poison them. I was just reading about poisoning rats in washington d c because apparently they're on a resurgence. you know We do all kinds of things to animals, right, and some people think you shouldn't but the, um, but the point is that you know when we can't even make up our, our minds about the proper way to uh, to to treat uh, uh, rats and mice, then how are we uh, why would we Um, Now, going back the other direction, why would we design something that needs the same kinds of protections as rats and mice? Okay, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is the first part that I talked about before. AI is something we've built. And while we're we're building something that we can maintain, that we can be accountable for, we're not going to ever have something that experiences... Uh, stress and pain and those kinds of things as systemically as humans do. It would be a really bad idea to do that. So you could build a robot now and you could put a bomb in it and you could put a sensor and a clock and say, okay, if I haven't seen any other person for five minutes, I blow myself up, okay? So you could do that and you might say, oh, that's, that's even worse than being a human because when we go into solitary confinement, it's torture for us. But, but, you know, we survive, but this robot blows up in five minutes. But the robot isn't going to care. That's a separate piece. It's not the same experience of solitary confinement that a human has. So while we're over-anthropomorphizing, we're basically allowing ourselves to be exploited by the people who, you know, Yeah, I hate the fact that people are talking about smart speakers when they're smart microphones, right? How would you, <laughs> the mic- how would you call them? Uh, uh, do you know 1984? Uh, some, one of my friends, uh, Jason Noble said we should call them telescreens. Mm. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, no, I would call them personal digital assistants, uh, which is what we used to call, uh, just like, you know, like a smartphone, the early smartphones. Um, but they weren't phones, but we would just write things down on them. They didn't used to be networked. Um, so the point is that you have a personal digital assistant that's not personal, right? Because, because you don't know how much it's being used by other people. And I, I really hope that one of the things that uh, we're succeeding in doing, I'm seeing some indication about this, is get people, getting people overthinking that the Internet of Things is a good idea. Because I have, um, especially in Eastern Europe, actually, I was at a European uh, Commission meeting in, in Sofia, the Digital Assembly, and the Eastern European politicians totally get this. You know, wiring the world together means that you're allowing the hackers next door to, to get into the world. And, and uh, so you need to be very careful about how you, again, how you architect things. If you, have, if you did have a single program that was in charge of, you know, the power grid or something, well, then that becomes a single point uh, that can be compromised either by hacking it directly or by understanding how it works and then sort of exploiting it by moving around it. Um, So, again, you'd rather have a system that's heterogeneous and, and, yeah, we should get back to the people. Another thing that's really essential um, is that our entire culture and all of our concepts like justice uh, um, and punishment and responsibility – those are things that we've developed to keep our species running. They're not things that are just out there in the, the world, right? They're, 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 um, they're in innovations that we use and we keep updating. You know, I can't believe how many people think that fairness is something that's just, that's the native state of the world, And then um, and then we can, uh, you know, because I I don't know if you know, you probably know if you've read these other things that I last year, I had a paper come out that showed that you get sexism and racism, you find it in any artificial intelligence that's been trained up on just ordinary, ordinary language. Hmm. Um, So uh, so people say, but you've got this, you've got this just sitting in vectors, now fix it. And it's like, and people even say just add some random noise. Look, adding random noise doesn't fix anything, it just, um, it reduces the signal. So it returns it back to entropy, right? That life is not entropy, right? That's That the entropy is the opposite of life. Life is structure and order. And so fairness is our constant attempt to keep coordinating life in such a way that we can all benefit, right? Fairness is an ideal, that you know, that's that's not natural. You know, people are not born the same height and the same strength and with the same parents and and with the same gender. Right? We all have very physical differences, as well as you know, the mental is a part of an extension of the physical. Right? So we are different. And then fairness is how how do we cope with those differences in a way that that's best for society as a whole? Um, and that is a
0: constantly changing set of of uh, of compromises that we make. From your perspective, what are the real dangers we should discuss right now? And then the next step is, can you draw like a future? Let's say maybe in the next five to 10 years, what we should do in order to make sure that we develop safe AI and um, AI that is augmenting our own capabilities. Because at the moment, it's going in the direction that AI is taking over a lot of decisions. And what you just said before is touching on value alignment. So we all have different values and we have different cultures that agree and disagree on different things. Um, And as a lot of decisions are being made by AI, so how can we make sure that this is heading into a positive future?
1: Okay. I think it's really essential that we disagree uh, that I disagree with something you've said, which is, it is not that AI is taking over decisions, right? It is that people are are making the decision to put AI in charge of decisions And that is something that they are then in control of. So they can can alter the AI and alter the decisions. It is not that AI is another species or another country that we have to negotiate with. Rather, what's important is understanding that artificial intelligence is something we've had for a long time. Um, For decades, we've had it using digital computers. It is one of the tools in our toolbox and we need to get a strong concept of that. We need to stop talking about it. Again, this is one of the huge dangers of anthropomorphizing it. You literally get smart, um, you know, well-meaning people who are sitting there trying to defend the rights of AI or you're know, really wanting to build this future where, where we are uh, superseded by AI and not realizing that, first of all, that is incredibly technologically implausible. But second as you say in the next 30 years or so um would almost certainly just lead to more people being killed right destroyed being seen as unimportant aspects by governments or corporations or rich individuals who don't need them as part of their plan right so ai is being used as a as a shield uh that are, that is um well literally as a shell company that is uh allowing people to do what they really want and misdirect attention towards machines. So artificial intelligence is just a technology that we can use badly or well, right? And and so it's like, what is the right way to store chemical weapons, right? What is the right way uh, to deploy nuclear power? What is, should we not deploy nuclear power at all? Or maybe it's really important ecologically, right? Those kinds of decisions are the same kinds of decisions we need to make when we talk about... Um, you know, not just artificial intelligence, but data, privacy, cybersecurity, this is all about, um, you know, ICT, uh, information communication technology, more generally, AI is just one tool in the toolbox. And so getting that clear to people, Look, even if you have a robot that really is your best friend that you are immensely emotionally attached to, you could demand that that robot can be backed up. So you don't have to worry, like if there's a fire or something, you just leave it behind. Right. And then it just, then you just buy another robot and you get the backup. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So even if you choose to make your emotional bond into a machine instead of to the people who could actually help you in the long term, uh, you know, that's your personal decision. Right. But you can demand that you don't have that kind of exposure. And I think this is a real problem. Again, we have these same issues when you look at um, when there's the, I don't, I doubt that they have this problem, but I don't know. In Kerala right now, but when when um, when when we had the flooding in uh, New Orleans, you know how much resource and expenditure do you uh, do you put forward to trying to make sure the dogs and cats are okay, right? So, but dogs and cats do suffer like humans. They absolutely experience emotionally, physically, very similar things, but. The problem is, you know, we only have so many resources. Do we make sure that, you know, what, how certain do we have to make that, that there's no children left behind before we start rescuing the dogs? But the families don't come without their dogs, right? And so then you have these other issues. Same thing happened with Sandy here on the East Coast. The animals were left behind and then we're starving and people are very concerned about that. Why should we put ourselves in that situation with the technology which is designed that we can ensure we don't have that problem with? It isn't that as soon as you build AI, it backs up, right? This is something that um, we have to make the systems engineering decisions to say we are only going to use AI if we know how to back it up, right? That is, a, that is a decision that is made at the engineering point, and that's the kind of thing that we can regulate to reduce problems in the future like the problems we have now. We're still going to have to defend each other's rights, but if we're, conf- if we're confusing the problem by saying, um, oh, we, we want to build AI that we have to defend the rights of, too, you know, we only have so much time and so much moral consideration. There's, like, papers about this, you know, like, you know, it's a huge problem about how do you get people to care about Syria as much as they care about, you know, the, the couple hundred murders in Chicago. Now, I'm not saying that the couple hundred murders in Chicago don't matter, but I'm saying that the thousands of lives in Syria matter probably more. Just, you know, I don't know. It depends how you feel about it. If you're sitting in Chicago, and I, you know, I can intellectually say I care more about Syria than Chicago. But actually, I'm from Chicago. And when I read the Chicago stories, it does have more emotional impact on me than when I read the Syrian stories. But intellectually, I don't think that's right. And so I vote for people that have a perspective that, 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 that goes with my intellectual decision, my my. my um my my uh yeah like I said my explicit decisions about how morality should work. Now a lot of people tell you like no your your intuitions are the important things but your intuitions are derived from history. They're not about the present. Um, and that is what we were showing with that paper in 2017. So we showed not only that you get the same implicit biases that humans have just by reading humans language but also that a lot of those line up to reality. So, so the same things that we're saying terribly sexist things about, that women are more associated with, uh, you know, with, with um, domestic things and men are more associated with, with career things uh, relative to each other. Um, we're also giving accurate reports about what proportion of women um, or what proportion of people that held a particular job were women, right? Right. So, so the point is that our attitudes about prejudice, what society has decided is okay to say, is something we've agreed. This is going back to fairness again. We've agreed that that should be the target for the future, right? But, the, but our intuitions, our, our implicit um, behavior is based on the past. It's based on history up to this point by which we make these projections, which is cool. This shows us what consciousness is for. It's one of the ways we negotiate. We we pick new goals, and that we negotiate better equilibria. That's where that's where fairness comes from, yeah, right? It's you're not-
0: saying it's a tool for intelligence. It's a useful tool for intelligence. Oftentimes, consciousness and intelligence is being confused to a certain degree. one oh, totally. of the your papers you're uh, saying it's a it can be a very useful tool for intelligence as one component.
1: Yeah. well, the the paper the it's called uh, a role for uh, consciousness and action selection. Um, the, the, I basically uh, claim there that the that – the, so there's so many different meanings of the word consciousness. But if we just look at that feeling that we have when we report being conscious, right? So at what point do we report remembering that things happened? That seems to be when we're building new memories of a particular kind. So, again, it has to do with planning, navigation, structuring things that can't just be remembered in a flash, so you can't report how you recognize a picture or something. You have no idea. That was done with the sort of parallel concurrent part of your brain. But the part that has to deal with the how do I get from here to there, how do I take steps, that seems to be the part that, um, that when we're learning new models for it is when we say we were conscious. And so, yeah, that could be useful if you had a system, a, a robot system, where it also needed to make those kinds of plans and it had resources. If, that, if, there, if there was resource constraints, so it couldn't just be doing that about everything all the time, which none of us can. That's combinatorially impossible, right? So then it would make sense to focus that learning on the kinds of things it's doing right now. So that's, we tend to learn about stuff that's in front of us that we're not sure how to do. If we're sure how to do it, we don't remember it. We're not conscious of it. It's just a skill at that point, right? It's just a reflex. But when we're uncertain or if something unusual happens, that's when suddenly it grabs our attention and now we're conscious of it. So, yeah, you could have a component in an AI system that might be useful depending on whether you want the system to learn for itself. I mean, as I was just recommending, maybe that's not something we need a lot of systems to do. We can have them more accountable if we train them up, uh, you know, separately and then they come in and they're only updating things like what is the name of the person I'm working for, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to have it really constructing radical new plans. But if you did build a system like that, then we should have that component, sure. But again, that doesn't mean that we'd have a different moral obligation towards it, because the the root of the moral obligations are the things like suffering, uh, social responsibility, um, uniqueness, right? Whether you can get it back again, because it's an asset. Every person is an asset to society, right? A a huge asset. You spend 20 years developing them, and then you expect to have another 60 years where they're going to actually perform for you. So to be very rude, (laughs) but but that's part of the reason that we really care about human life.
0: So we've been talking a lot about the dangers and and risks associated with AI. What are um, the areas that amaze you the most about AI? So what do you think What is the most positive thing about AI? Well, I mean, again, going back to the emotional response, I remember the, the thing I was most
1: excited about recently, and this is now a few years ago, was, uh, here, I'll, I'll turn the video back on so you can uh, let's see how I do this. Because yeah? if it's the end, hopefully it's not going to die again. Okay, so what I was most excited about was actually um, someone talking about real-time uh, translation. And I just thought, that would be so amazing if, if, you know, we could both be talking in our native languages. You're fine in English, but a lot of people, it would be so much better if they weren't being forced to, 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 you know, retranslate their ideas in something that they can't be quite as poetic in. And of course, it would never be the same level of poetry from the translation, but at least letting everybody, you know, be fluent and, and, and talk and, and conceptualize in the language in which they're fluent. And then, you know, great if they learn the other languages and they can do even better. Um, but um, but that's just at an emotional level, I guess.
0: I, I think it's right very interesting. Um, at the same time, it would be interesting to see if you also learn a lot about the culture at the same time, because when you learn a new language, you learn a lot about the culture. Language shapes how you think. And yeah. if you can use it with well, technology that... and can facilitate this, this would be awesome because then all these information gaps between people would not exist anymore.
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Go, let's go back to that heterogeneous architecture idea I had before, though. Um, maybe you don't want everything to be the same. And there's another possibility, uh, which is the opposite of what you just said, which is you might get a veneer of understanding, which actually left you uh, capable of maintaining more heterogeneity, Right. So you, because you were able to do the important negotiations and get that done, but then you, don't, you actually allow people to keep their relatively different views about the world. So it's interesting, um, and this is something, again, that I have, you know, some pe- so many people have learned the value of diversity, and it is really important. You, the, you need a lot of ideas to solve a lot of problems. But at the same time, what nature does is it maintains diversity. In fact, it increases diversity in some ways, but also selects away the stuff that's not doing work for you. And some people are resistant to selecting anything away. They want to keep revisiting the same questions over and over. And I'm like, no. Sometimes you need to realize that. You, okay, we've made a step now. Now let's move on and look at some other diversity. You know, and um, and that you know that that's uh, while you have eight billion people, that may not seem too essential because you could have a few of them chasing any hill, right? Mm-hmm. But I think for the, for the main narrative, the one that's you know, winding up in the newspapers and on television and in the textbooks, because you still only have a few years to teach, to teach students as undergraduates, then those need to keep moving on and be the best thing that we've been able to find so far. Um, I think I've got slightly lost from your question now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I think those are some very good final words so um thank you very much for your time that was really mind extending a lot of new information for me to go through and i'm pretty sure also for the listeners so thank you again thank you so much and well thank you
1: it's a real pleasure and, and i appreciate that you really have read a lot of my work uh, that was uh, very well prepared so.
0: for sure i will continue doing so so i'm looking forward to some new papers coming up
1: yep yeah okay.
0: see you This episode of Global Brains, the podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more insights and the latest trends in the AI world. Always aiming to make AI accessible to everyone. Also, don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content. If you work in the AI field or want to, join our community by following the link in the description. See you in the next
1: episode.